Well, all three friends of Job have taken their shot at comforting Job. Such great comforters that they were. They've tried to comfort him by explaining to him why he is suffering. And their conclusion is that the reason that Job is suffering is that he must have sinned. That sin is the reason for Job's difficulties. And though the first two chapters told us that's not the case, that revealed to us that Job was blameless, he was upright, he fears God, he turns from evil. It is not that Job has sinned. However, these friends have tried to cause Job to to admit his guilt. But Job has remained resolute in his innocence that he has not done something that has brought this upon him. And unfortunately, Job's three friends will not leave him alone. You would suppose after one cycle of speeches, once by each man, you'd say, well, they all have their say that that would be enough. And yet now we will see a second cycle as all three of these men will take their turn to speak to Job and Job will respond to them. And so as we've been doing, as we've been looking at these cycles of speeches, we will consider what the friends say and what is faulty in their declarations. We'll look at what Job says and what is right about what he says. And then most importantly, we'll look at God and we'll look at what we learn about suffering, about how God runs the world. Let's begin by reading the first six verses of chapter 15, as now Eliphaz takes his second attempt at Job. Job chapter 15, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Interesting beginning as Eliphaz begins his attack. And what we see with Eliphaz immediately is we've lost the gentle uh, Eliphaz that begin by saying, Now, could one venture a word with you? Perhaps I could say something here in terms of some comfort. No, that politeness of Eliphaz has completely vanished. And you'll notice in verse 2, he basically says, A wise man wouldn't speak such empty talk. You wouldn't have such empty shatter coming out of somebody if he was truly wise. And you'll notice again, this is the third time that Job's been called a windbag. Notice that it says that his stomach is filled with the east wind. And so everything that comes out of his mouth is hot air. And so Job's attempts to argue his case are simply invalid. And so what Eliphaz concludes is, your sin is what prompts your mouth. The sinful things that are coming out of your mouth and the lack of wisdom and foolishness of your mouth comes from your sin. Your iniquity is within you. And I don't even have to condemn you anymore. It's your own words that condemn you. Listen to what you're saying, Job. It's clear that you are a sinner and you don't even need me to condemn you in those things. Not that that will stop Eliphaz from continuing to do such a list. I think it's interesting some of the charges that Eliphaz lays out. Like in verse 4, he says, You know, Job, the way you're talking is going to cause people to fall away from God. 
They're going to stop meditating on God. They're not going to stop having the fear of God. If you keep speaking this way, the way that you reflect and the way that you talk is causing people to lose faith themselves. And so you've shown by your words that you are not blameless, though you claim to be. And this is, becomes one of the big things that these friends will go back to is now they will just charge his words in this cycle and just say, well, we've heard what you've said and we know that you're a sinner because of the things you've said. Now, the typology of that is particularly interesting because we're told that Job is a blameless man. He is upright. And why is he being condemned by his friends? Ultimately, here for these friends, they're condemning him because Job is not saying the things that they think he should be saying. They want to hear Job say, yeah, I must have sinned somewhere. I must have done something wrong. You're absolutely right. I'm clearly guilty and I need to repent before God and then everything is going to get better. And Job stubbornly refuses to say those things. He understands that he is righteous. And so the only condemnation that these friends can come up with is to say, well, we don't like what you're saying and what you're saying must be wrong. And so that is our criticism of you. And that's why you're guilty. And the typology of that is interesting because that's how it worked for Jesus as well. Is here you have a a typology already being layered of here is a completely innocent person, a man who is blameless and upright. There's no sin in him whatsoever. And what finally is the reason that gets Jesus then to be executed? But they get some witnesses say, we heard him say, we don't like what he's saying. And so because he says these things. This is the reason why he's worthy of condemnation. In fact, when it comes down to the one-on-one, as Caiaphas then charges Jesus, are you the son of the blessed one? Simply Jesus saying, I am. Caiaphas tears his clothing and says, we don't need to hear anything else. Condemned by his words. And yet there is nothing wrong with the words that are being said. Jesus didn't say anything wrong. And I hope that we would consider up to this point, I don't think that we could say that Job has just completely disregarded God and has said wrong things. Tonight's lesson, we're going to see the friends are going to charge him with that. But that's not what we have seen in what Job is doing. And it's not the basis by which he said the things that he's saying. He's not saying words about God because he is completely thrown off God. He's turned his back against God and is shaking his fist at God and saying, I'm done with God. That's not the reason why Job speaks the way he does. He clearly is looking for answers and is very confused by the things that have happened to him and ultimately because he's lost his relationship with God that he thinks has happened. And so he speaks them the way that he speaks. So this is what Eliphaz begins with. It's just simply saying, we don't have any other need to talk about these things. It is not I that condemns you, as verse 6 says. It's just simply your own mouth that condemns you. That leads Eliphaz now to just simply say to Job, anything that you say that you think is wisdom is ultimately corrupt. It is of absolutely no value. And so Eliphaz starts by saying like in verses 7 through 9, you think you have the inside track on wisdom. You think you've got it all figured out. And so, you know, have you, verse 8, have you listened in on the counsel of God and do you limit wisdom to yourself? Has Job ever said that he thinks he possesses all wisdom and knowledge and understands all this? Not at all. The only challenge that Job has made is your wisdom doesn't make sense. 
He's challenged the three friends and said, what you're telling me doesn't add up. What you say doesn't appear to be wisdom at all. But because Job rejects the wisdom of the three friends, therefore Job's wisdom is corrupt and is not worthy of being listened to. And that's how it flows out through there. Like you get to verse 10 and you'll notice the primary argument that Eliphaz makes is we're older, therefore we're wiser. We've got the answers, not you. And we're following the traditions. We've received that which has been long handed down for ages past of wisdom. And so you need to listen to what we have to say. And I think we would quickly recognize and we need to always consider is that the older doesn't necessarily mean you have godly wisdom. And that's what's failing here. These three men may be older, But they're not presenting the wisdom of God in what they say. But Eliphaz thinks that's what he is doing. In verses 11 through 13, which you have Eliphaz saying, I want you to notice it with me. It's pretty shocking. Verse 11. Are the comforts of God too small for you or the word that deals gently with you? Please stop and reflect on that. Are the comforts of God too small for you? Uh, What comfort has Job experienced up to this point? Eliphaz is saying, my words are your comfort. And you don't see my words as comfort. And he's saying, what I'm telling you is the comfort of God. And you see it as nothing. I am trying to give you the words that you need to understand. A word of verse 11 that deals gently with you. I haven't heard a lot that sounds very gentle from these three friends. And yet Eliphaz says, I'm speaking gently to you the very comforts of God. (laughs) I, I can't help but wonder what Job's face looked like as those words came out. That you're comforting me and dealing gently with me, really. And then notice what Eliphaz says in verse 12. Why does your heart carry you away? And why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? And so he basically says, you've turned against God. And it's evident because you won't listen to our advice. You won't hear our counsel. You won't accept that our words are the wisdom of God and the comforts of God. He says, it's clear then you've turned your back on God, which again, we've noticed as we've studied with Job, that's not it. And you'll listen to Job's response to this, that he will certainly strenuously argue against this idea that Job has certainly not turned his back on God. But this is the conclusion the friends simply make. And so the rest of this little section here through verse 16 is just to continue to show the sinfulness of Job. In fact, this should sound familiar to you. Verse 14, what is man that he can be pure or he was born of woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. Most of those lines Eliphaz said back in chapter four, verses 17 and 19. And so basically Eliphaz says, maybe you didn't hear me the first time. I'll say it again to you. You're not righteous. And what an ending there in verse 16 to say, you drink injustice like water. 
Oh, if he had only known the first two chapters that said he was blameless and upright and fears God and turns from evil. And he comes along and says, you're clearly unjust. It's evident from your life. It's evident from your words. Your spirit has turned from God. So this is the the picture that Eliphaz gives in this attack. And then finally, the rest of the section from verses 17 to 35, what Eliphaz does is he now decides he will describe the wicked. I'm going to go through and tell you, here's what the wicked look like. Here's what they do. Here's what they say. And you might think that's all very innocent enough until you hear what he basically says. He describes like in verse 20, the wicked suffer torment and their wealth offers no escape. You have a really wealthy man and all of a sudden they suffer torment and their wealth is unable to help them and unable to cause them to escape. Sound familiar? Here's Job. Job is wealthy. Job chapter 1 said that he is the richest man of all the East. And so here is the statement of, but guess what? This man and his wealth offers no escape whatsoever. whatsoever. In fact, he says a little bit later on, verses 21 through 24, the wicked are hopeless and the wicked are distressed and they're certainly doomed by God. And so they are blinded by their wealth. They don't see that they are resisting God. And ultimately what God does is he wipes out the wicked wealthy. This is an interesting conclusion because what Eliphaz does is he kind of shifts his argument just a little bit and says, okay, so the wicked can be wealthy, but only for a short time until God strikes them down. And that's what happened to you, Job. You weren't righteous. You just had a facade of righteousness and you were wicked and God finally caught up to you and struck you down. And that's what's happened. And so that's his conclusion that he draws. And so this is an interesting thing because the theology of Eliphaz is that suffering then cannot be inevitable. It is not something that happens. There's no concept of time and chance or anything like that. That all suffering is a divinely instituted discipline for sin. And that's what he's concluding to to Job. The reason you had your wealth and you lost it is that you hid behind your wealth and you pretended to be righteous, but you really were not. You're absolutely hopeless. And so God then came along and took away any hope for you and destroyed you ultimately because of your sin. And that's how he concludes his very idea. Now, what do you think Job is going to say to those things? I think it's an interesting situation that Job is put in in regards to this because yet again we see the problem of retribution theology that we keep identifying every time we look at this. Does God use suffering to bring people to him and to turn people to him? Yes, he does. We see that in the scriptures. We see that truth made even later in the book. Elihu is going to make that very point. We see that idea in the New Testament where we are told constantly about trials refine our faith. Well, what else are we talking about here but a way and a means by which through difficulties and distress and trouble that our faith can be refined, that we would draw closer to God, that we would use those things as a tool. Here's the error. Here's the problem. Is all suffering divinely instituted discipline for sin? And that's the conclusion that Eliphaz draws. Is all suffering a divinely instituted discipline for sin? 
And the answer, of course, is no. Suffering and loss does not mean that God is disciplining you as illustrated in the life of Job, the life of Joseph, the life of of the prophets, the lives of the apostles, the life of Jesus. We can go to all kinds of people who are suffering and experience loss, but it's not because of sin and it's not because of some divinely appointed justice of God to do something against them. And so this again becomes the error where you take something that God says and says, yes, I can use suffering and bring it about for my own purposes and draw people to me through that and say, well, that must mean that anything that happens in your life must mean that God then is divinely striking you for your sins. And again, the book of Job resoundly says that is not the case, that the way of God and how he runs the world is simply not that simple. And so again, Eliphaz is incorrect. So how would you say, what would you say if you're Job? Listen to the first six verses of chapter 16. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if I were if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Just think about what he begins with by saying, I love it. He starts off by saying, basically, I need new friends. I mean, that's just ultimately what he gets. I just need some new friends. Uh, Love the phrase, miserable comforters are you all. Remember back at the end of chapter two, why did these three friends come? To comfort and give sympathy to Job. Job here now in the middle of this is going, you three are terrible at this. You came for comfort. You're miserable comforters. And Job says, if the roles were reversed, I would strengthen you with words. I would give you comfort. I would try to help you through this. But instead, that's not what you've done. And this leads then into a description that we would probably likely call a lament of Job. Verse 7. Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company and he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouths. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They they mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease. And he broke me apart. He seized me by my neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. The, his archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and he does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure, O earth, cover not my blood and let me cry, let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witnesses in heaven and he who testifies for me is on high 
My friend scorn me and my eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of man with God as the son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the I shall go the way from which I shall not return. Simply put, here is Job just saying, God has wrecked me. God has absolutely destroyed me. After challenging the friends as miserable comforters, he just points to them and just says, I want you to understand why you're such miserable comforters. Everybody has has left me. Everybody's left me alone and forsaken me. I have absolutely nobody. And here my three friends, they've turned now against him and are attacking him. And he says, God is just wearing me out. That's all he's done throughout all of this. Such sharp words, especially in verse 9, when you think about the pain that is striking his soul and striking his mind and heart. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. This is what Job feels like. Job looks at his life and says, God hates me. God stands against me. Now let's take a step back and think about that for a minute. Is that true? It's not. And I think this is an important observation to look at with Job, is that there can absolutely be a disconnect between what we feel and what the truth is. And that's where Job is at right now. He thinks God is attacking me. God hates me. God is trying to destroy me. He is ripping me apart. I mean, he is describing his kidneys are being tossed everywhere. He just says, God is just shredding me to pieces because he hates me. And the truth of the matter is that's not the case at all. God does not hate him. God loves him. We've seen that in those first two chapters how much God cares about him. And I think this is important for us because we have truly a great problem in our society today that we should consider because our culture tells us that the way we feel must be the way things are in reality. What you feel is truth and what you feel is reality. And we have to fight against that, that it is absolutely possible to have these feelings and yet that not be the reality of what has happened. We can probably understand that on a very small level where you might have had some discussion with a friend of yours or somebody here and you walked away from that and you thought, boy, they're really mad at me. (laughs) They are. They're really upset at me because of the way they said something. You go to that person like another day and you go, were you upset at me about that? And they go, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, There's not a problem. What do you mean? There is always the possibility that feelings and what the truth is are in a disconnect. And that's what Job is experiencing right now. And friends, I would adamantly say in the middle of deep trials, that is definitely the case. The way you feel. And the concerns that you have in thinking, well, God must not be listening. God is far away. God does not care. God does not see what's going on. He does not hear my words. He has no concern over the affairs of these things is not true, even though you feel that way. And that's where Job is at. 
is he's experiencing those same emotions. That is exactly how you feel in trial. That it feels like God is far away. That God has turned his back. And here is the point to us in those feelings. Is to all the more draw near to God and hold on to God. When God feels far away. No mentally he's not far away. But do something about it and draw closer to him. I love the words of Abide With Me, a song that we sing. You may notice from time to time that's a pretty frequent one that I will lead if I get a chance. One of the lines that always resonates in my mind, When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. That is what we're supposed to do in trial. All the helpers are gone. There's no comfort there. You have no one to sustain. The call is to God. Help. Abide with me. Draw closer to God. And let that be our encouragement. And I hope that you would observe that though here Job is saying that God destroys me in this section... You also hear words of hope that he believes that God is near. I think it's fascinating this chapter because he's like, God has destroyed me and God hates me and shredded me to pieces. He speaks in verse 16 of that there is no hope in myself. But then notice in in, in verse 17, "I, I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen I will declare for what the wise men... Wait, I'm in chapter 15. Move over to chapter 16. Wrong chapter. Verse 7, verse... Verse uh, 17, verse 16, my face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness, although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. He continues to say, I haven't done anything wrong. And then is continuing now to cry out to God after saying like back in verse 13 and 14, look at what he does to me. He runs upon me like a warrior here. He's doing all these things. And yet here he says in verse 20, my friends scorn me. But my eye pours out tears to God. He keeps calling out to God and is keeps offering his prayer, longing for vindication, saying he is blameless. He has not done anything wrong and continues to declare, I'm going to keep seeking the Lord, even though you all think that I'm a sinner and I'm wicked and I must have done something to deserve this. He keeps crying out to God again and again and again. And you'll notice that what he does here for the second time, verses 21 and 22, is again a pleading for an intercessor. He did that before. We spent quite a bit on that. And I need someone to go between me and God. And I think what you see is truly great faith. Because of a man who feels that he is separated from God, that God hates him, that God is tearing him into pieces, that God has become upon him like a warrior and has struck him down, he's still calling out to God and saying, help. Help me through this. Get me through this difficulty. Lord, give me somebody to help me through all of these things. It is a wonderful picture that is given. He desires a mediator who would plead with God as a person would plead with a friend. Verses 18 through 22. And so we continue to see this picture of Job longing in hope, though it all feels hopeless to him. 
that we would recognize feelings and truth can greatly be in a disconnect. Just because we feel a certain way about what God has done or feel that God is far or that God hates us or God is striking us or something like that doesn't mean that that's the truth. The book of Job is beautiful for us to see that, that, to draw us back to him and recognize God does not hate us. God does not turn his back on us. God is not trying to destroy us. I love that in the New Testament. Why in the world would God send his son to die for his people only to turn around and then say, now I'm going to destroy them? Of course not. Of course not. He didn't make the ultimate sacrifice to turn around and strike us down. And that pushes us a little bit further into Job. Listen to this final response. It continues to be a lament, just crushing words to listen to what Job says. You get a sense of what Job is experiencing. Chapter 17. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me. And my eye dwells on their provocation. Lay down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. But you come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past, my plans are broken off, the desires of my heart... They make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will I go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? Again, you hear Job with just declarations of it is hopeless, it is hopeless, it is hopeless. He begins by saying death is near. And isn't it just so true that when you are down, that's when the mockers all come and try to kick you down some more. And that's what he says has happened to him is that my spirit is broken. My days are extinct. And yet verse true, there's mockers all about me and I continue to see their provocation. They continue to kick me while I'm down. I mean, it gets worse and worse as he describes. They spit on me and they're mocking me. They're doing all these things. And yet notice even in the face of that, there is still faith verses 3 to 5 he says God's not going to let him get away with that I think that's such a beautiful thing that he describes there is that God is going to do something about that verse 4 since you have closed their hearts to understanding therefore you will not let them triumph here is the expression of faith in God saying God I know you're going to deal with them even though they continue to provoke me and mock me and say all these things God I know you're going to do something even though Job is a shadow of his former self. He's not the same person that he used to be as he describes himself in just absolute horror of pain. I thought verses 8 and 9 were particularly powerful because he says in those two verses, 
that the upright are appalled, the innocent stirs himself against the godless. And what he's getting at here is the reason why his friends are against him and these people are mocking him is because the righteous don't have an explanation for righteous suffering. Here is Job, blameless and upright. And we want to live in a world that says only the wicked suffer and the righteous are always blessed. And now Job is an anomaly to that and goes, and the righteous go, I don't know what to do with that. How do we reconcile that? And so they're upset by that because righteous suffering doesn't have easy answers. It never has had any easy answers. It's what causes turmoil within us. Why are we suffering? Why is this happening? How is this going on? There's not an easy answer to that. And these who come to him as righteous and upright, they want to say that they have the answers. But verse 9, I think is very, very important that you see Job saying he continues to cling to his own righteousness, even though they seem to cling to their own righteousness and think they're right. Job will not falter in this. He will not waver in this in trying to get them to understand that that is not the cause of his suffering. And so they spit on him, they mock him, they shame him, and yet he still contends that he is righteous even though he is hopeless. Verse 10, he says, none of you are wise. Uh, Job's coming to a reality about these friends. I cannot listen to these three. They are of no help. They are not bringing me wise counsel. And so then he continues with his lament and says his plans, his hopes are shattered. Oh, how true a trial feels like that. It's just like all my hope is gone. All my future is dust. And verse 12, they make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. That is great. Let's spend some time with that statement right there. What are the people who come to him say? Job, the light is near the darkness. How many useless affirmations and cliches have you heard in the midst of suffering? Because that's what they're doing here. Well, we know you're in darkness, but you know, the light comes soon after that. (laughs) It's all going to be okay. It's all going to get better. The light is coming. How many times have you heard words like that? Like things will get better. There's gold at the end of the rainbow. Turn your your lemons into lemonade. Every ridiculous social media meme that you can paste on your Facebook wall that's supposed to make it all better. Job goes, really? There's light after darkness. He says, you know what? All I see is darkness. And we've talked about this. Who says there's going to be light? Who says it's going to be any better? Nobody. God's not made that promise. God has not said tomorrow it'll all be better. It's all going to improve. And I think it's important to observe that deep pain, then it doesn't need our empty words. These kinds of silly things that sometimes we feel compelled that we have to say to people who are going through suffering, that we're going to give them some kind of weak advice or some kind of comfort that is not helpful, it is not true. And I think it's important for us to grasp that, that those are not things that are helpful. I remember when Grace got the, when we got Grace's diagnosis, not from you guys, but you won't believe it's some of the useless Things you hear from people when you go through hard times that are just, you know, you sit there, you're in such, I think, trauma that you just kind of, okay, (laughs) you just kind of summarily agree, but they're ridiculous things. 
That's what Job is hearing from people. It's all going to be fine. Turn your lemons into lemonade. The light follows the darkness. It's all going to get better. You're going to be fine. And that's not helpful. And it may not even be true. One of the things that Job continues to describe for us in this book is to recognize on our part that God is far too complex for simple answers. He's just far too complex for that. There is no basis by which that we are able to go to another person and say, here's the answers. I have it all figured out. Here's what you need to do. I have this understanding from God. That's what these three friends are doing. And certainly what Eliphaz is doing. And to remind ourselves that there is truly no way for us to understand why things are happening the way they are. We want the why so badly. And I think in the process of desiring the answers to why, we make up answers that are often not true. Because we're grasping so desperately for reason. There's got to be a reason, something that I can put my hand on that does not need to be true, and it may not be true at all. And so again, Job just simply, verses 13 to 16, as he ends it, He just pictures death in the grave, a place of rest, and says, all I see is the end. I want to just look at one message, one point for us tonight, because the big message that Job seems to put his finger on in his response after Eliphaz speaks these false words and contends with him in such a terrible way and attacks him falsely again, is opening up this description of just saying, you know, you're just a bunch of miserable comforters. And to consider the things that Job is saying that would help us understand how not to do that. How not to be a miserable comforter for yourself. How not to be a miserable comforter for other people. One of the things that we've looked at already in our study of 2 Corinthians is one of the goals that God has given us in terms of our suffering is that we would be a conduit of comfort to others. And the last thing we need to do as we now come here to this place and depend upon one another and bear our souls and bear our pain through trials with one another is then to turn around and do something like these three friends. And be a miserable comforter. A few things I think we can gather from looking at these things. Number one, shorten the words. Uh, I just think sometimes we feel like we have to say a lot in the midst of somebody's suffering. When how many times we have discussed either in our class or after services or just in conversation how much better it would have been if these three friends would have stayed quiet. It would have been far better than all the things that they were saying. All the words that they thought were going to be comfort were not. In fact, what we're noticing is that the more that Eliphaz speaks, the more harm he does. And often that is what we do. The more we talk, the more pain we inflict. I think it's important for us to just... We can be comforters without saying a word. You don't have to have answers to be a comforter. And you don't even have to have the right words. Some of the best comfort, the most valuable comfort that you can receive are tearful hugs and sometimes just quiet companionship and compassion. Somebody that you know is just there.
and you can sit there and you can sit quietly or you can speak your heart and they will still sit there and listen and be there. These friends didn't get that. They felt like they had to provide answers. They had to have something to say. They had to give all these statements. And the best comfort we can give to people is to sometimes just quietly show compassion and be the person who is there when they need it most. Number two, when you do speak, do as what the Apostle Paul said, that we would season our words. It's a command given to us in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29 when he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. There are three things that he says. I love those three things to always remember those three things, especially when trying to be a comforter. He says, number one, when you speak, it needs to be for building up. Is this going to help them, encourage them, build them up? Is that what my words are about to do? Number two, does it fit the occasion? It may not be the right time to say it, even though they may be encouraging words. It may be the wrong time. Sometimes we think encouraging words are always the right time. And I think it's interesting that he says it needs to be good for building up. It needs to fit the occasion It needs to give grace, mercy to those who hear. These are three things that when we speak to others, these are the qualities that we need to have. When we speak, we need to think about, am I saying words that are going to help? Am I saying words that are good for the moment? Is this right for this person to hear? Are they giving grace to the person who is hearing these words? So often we are saying words that we think we would want to hear, but that may not be appropriate for what they need to hear. We often make a big mistake and do, well, if it were me, this is what I'd want. But sometimes that's not what that person wants. I found that out the hard way in my job. And when you deal with others who are in trials and difficulties, there are some people who want a throng of attention, a throng of people gathering around and a throng of people praying and hugging and crying. And there are some people who just want to sit quietly by themselves and just let them process the whole thing. And you have to discern who are you dealing with and how can you help them? Is it the right time? Is it the the fitting occasion? Does it give grace to the hearer to have wisdom to discern that to be the comforter that you want to be for that person? And then number three, to be able to consider our words. That may sound the same as the prior one, but I'm distinguishing it in terms of the other failure of these three friends is they keep misusing the Bible. They keep misusing God's words as they talk to Job. Carefully consider before you speak and you believe that you are giving godly wisdom. Is this really an appropriate understanding and application of God's word? Is what I am saying truly what God intends? Or am I using this in a way that is actually a distortion? That the words may be true, but the application is false. I think that's one of the most stunning things about this book. Is we will read Eliphaz, his words are quoted in the New Testament. And yet the things that he says are false because of how he's applying the word of God. You can have true words, but misapply to the circumstance. 
and not say it to the right person or say it at the right time. And that's a huge failure on on these three friends. I hope we will consider these things because everyone has trials and everyone suffers. And if you've been here in this congregation long enough, you've seen your fair share of people here who have gone through great trials and great severity. And we will be called upon to be the ones who will be comforters to one another, that we would be able to comfort one another in all their afflictions. Let us be able to appropriately do that and not be miserable comforters, but that people who can help in any affliction. I hope it it kind of hurts your heart to think about Job. Because to be as alone as he is and to still maintain great faith is perhaps one of the greatest challenges. And yet we see Job continue to do that and press on. Though he is alone and his friends offer him no respite or comfort at all. We're going to sing a song and we invite you to come to Jesus tonight. And we invite you to see Jesus as the one and only comfort that you need. He is the hope that you need and he is the help that you need. One thing that is certainly true is that we all, though unintentionally, we will let each other down. And we won't always be the best comforters and we won't always be the best help. But we have a wonderful comforter and a wonderful helper in God. And I hope that you would look to him for your help and look to him for your strength. He does not hate you. He has not turned his back on you. He is crying for you to come to him with all of your heart, that you turn away from your sins, to follow Jesus, the Son of God, who died for you with all of your heart, and to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Will you come to him tonight while we stand and while we sing?